Scripture lesson this morning is one of my favorite stories from the life of St. Paul. It just seems to me this story is full of space and grace for those who find faith difficult to come by. This is from Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so the Athenians took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling and hearing something new. And then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, this one is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by human hands. And it is in this God that we live and move and have our being. When the Athenians heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is the 10th and last sermon in a series that Katie and Joe and I have been preaching this fall to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and the 125th anniversary of Kenilworth Union Church. And we've called it Stained Glass for two reasons. First of all, thanks to Bill Hodgson, senior pastor here in the late 40s and early 50s, we have these beautiful denominational windows in the west wall of the name uh, representing the various slices of the Christian tradition from which most members at Kenilworth Union arrive here. And secondly, we call it stained glass because that's a good uh, symbol for global Christianity, right? The church Catholic is a mosaic. It's made up of lots of little pieces, lots of little slivers of glass and webs of lead. And if one of those little pieces was missing, the picture would be incomplete. And I've been saying that each slice of the Christian tradition contributes something irreplaceable and unique to the church Catholic. And so far, I've looked with you at Presbyterians, Congregationalists, uh, Lutherans, Catholics, Episcopalians, Methodists, and multi-denominationalists like ourselves. So do you know which of these traditions is the largest and most numerous in American Christianity? The uh, the correct answer is none. None of the above. The biggest segment of the American population are nuns. That is to say, when surveys ask Americans which denomination they hail from, most of them will say nuns. None. This This is true for the first time in 2017. It's never been this way before. 34% of the population, or 110 million Americans, call themselves nuns. 107 million of us call ourselves Protestants. Google tells me that there are 50,000 nuns in the United States, N-U-N-S, so that nuns, N-O-N-E-S, outnumber nuns, N-U-N-S, 2,200 times. So why is nothing such a popular religious choice? 
Why are so many Americans fleeing church like Bears fans from Soldier Field in the fourth quarter of a blowout? The simplest and most prosaic answer to that question is that millennials are not joiners. That is to say, the older you are, the likelier you are to be in church. The younger you are, the less likely you are to be in church. I know this from personal experience. My children are 29 and 24. 20-somethings don't go to church. And many of them won't return to church even when they get married and have babies who need Sunday school and baptism. Now, my guess is that these folk are not faithless. If you ask them, probably 90% of them would say, yes, I believe in God. They just aren't joiners. So that's the simplest and most prosaic answer to the question of the shrinking Christian church. But that's boring, isn't it? Let's investigate a couple of more theologically interesting answers to why so many Americans eschew organized religion. Now, I've been saying that each of the traditions immortalized in these windows contributes something unique to the potluck supper that is global Christendom. But what do the nuns contribute to the Christian church, right? What is their gift to us? I want to say this morning that the gift of the nuns to the church is the reminder of how hard it is to believe the teachings that the church offers the world, right? And so ever since this summer, when I cooked up this little sermon series, I've been wondering what windows will I use to represent the nuns? And then it occurred to me that the perfect windows were these memorials to our World War I soldiers, which are in the transept over there. Because World War I was a reason for many Americans and Europeans to lose their faith, right? The trench warfare and poison gas and indiscriminate brutality of the war just put an end to many people's Christian faith. 1914, everything is optimistic, scientific, industrial progress. 1918, Europe lies in ruins. It just extinguished many people's faith. And I don't know if you can read this, but the bottom window here, this tribute to Manier Barlow Ware, it says that he died in France on October 12, 1918. Do you remember what is Armistice Day? The cessation of hostilities, November 11, 1918. So Lieutenant Ware was 30 days from peace and home, but now he rests forever in the Argonne Cemetery in France. 30 days. So maybe the contribution of the nuns to the Christian church is the reminder about how hard Christian faith really is. Maybe the nuns can jolt the church out of its complacency, right? Because here's the thing. For most of recorded human history, which is about 5,000 years, for most of human history, God-fearers like ourselves have been always surrounded by other God-fearers. And it wasn't until about 200 years ago, maybe at the end of the 18th century with the American and French revolutions, that there were any atheists in Europe or the Americas at least public atheists. There were probably many people who harbored private doubts, but they would never speak those doubts because those doubts could get you killed. And so there was no such thing as a public European atheist before about 200, 250 years ago. What's happened since? Well, here's one thing that's happened. Science has fired God, right? God is unemployed. Science has been so successful in explaining the workings of the universe without the God hypothesis that many people see no need for organized religion or for Christian faith. 
You know, Kepler and Copernicus and Galileo removed Earth from the center of the universe, and then Isaac Newton and James Clerk Maxwell came along and showed us that they could tell us how the world works by explaining four elemental forces, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and the weak. Explain how everything works, energy, matter, the planet, stars. In 1802, the French mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace published this five-volume work called Celestial Mechanics, five volumes in which he explained how the universe, the planets, and the stars worked. And somebody told Napoleon Bonaparte that in all these five volumes, you could not find one mention of the word God. Well, Napoleon thought this was fascinating and marched straight down to Marquis Laplace's office to get his free copy of this book. And he said, Marquis Laplace, where does God fit into your equation? And Marquis Laplace answered, Sire, I have no need of that hypothesis. Yes? And then, right on the brink of the American Civil War, this unassuming trust fund baby an aficionado of barnacles and beetles in the English countryside produces the mother of all ideas. It's been said that the theory of natural selection is the greatest thought any human being has ever thought. When Mr. Darwin's friend and defender Thomas Huxley first heard the idea explained to him, he said how extremely stupid not to have thought of that. And they do a great job of teaching Darwin in the local schools, right? Ask Katie Lancaster, who teaches our confirmands. When she tries to tell them that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, they push back really efficiently and competently with their Darwin. The retired Oxford University professor Richard Dawkins says that anybody who believes in God after Darwin is an idiot. I think that is a direct quote, an idiot. Oh plunge the knife in, knife in and twist it, right? Dr. Dawkins says that faith is like smallpox, but harder to eradicate. Dr. Dawkins' fellow believer, Sam Harris, is horrified when he finds out that 120 million Americans believe that God created the world 2,500 years after the Babylonians learned to brew beer. And so maybe there are so many nuns because of the spectacular success science has known in explaining the world without the God hypothesis. Or maybe it's not the success of science. Maybe it is the failure of God-fearers themselves, right? Christopher Hitchens points out that most suicide bombers are people of faith. Most genital mutilators are people of faith. Many who abuse children are Roman Catholic priests. The bishops who shuffled those abusive priests around from parish to parish for decades are people of faith. The popes who forbid condoms in an age of AIDS is a person of faith. Mr. Hitchens points out that during the 1940s, the only member of the Nazi party to be excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church was Joseph Goebbels. And Mr. Goebbels was invited to leave the communion, not because he engineered the Holocaust, but because he married a divorced Protestant. The 20th century Cambridge University philosopher Bertrand Russell used to say, 
People many times tell me that it is very wicked to criticize religion because religion makes people virtuous. So I am told. I have not noticed it. And so maybe the nuns are nuns because they think like John Lennon. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. And so the nuns are not some people for us to fear. They're not our enemies. They are worthy antagonists. They are the loyal opposition in two ways, at least. First of all, they help us to sharpen our thinking about this noble but empirically unverifiable hypothesis of God's existence. And secondly, they show us, as if we're looking in a mirror, the ways in which we who have been able to make the Christian God our own have fallen short of the lofty expectations of the invisible deity and of his very visible Son. Those are the ways in which they can shape us into a more beautiful community. And did you know that there's this splendid story in the Bible about people who are unable to make the Christian God their own? I don't have time to explain what Paul's doing in Athens when this story happens, but it seems almost as if he's there as a tourist. He's sort of sightseeing. He's sort of wandering the Athenian streets, seeing what there is to be seen. And he eventually ends up on the Areopagus, which is near the Acropolis. Uh, Areopagus is Greek for Mars Rock or Mars Hill, the rock of the god of war, Areopagus. And there are statues and tributes and temples to every god in the Greek pantheon. And among all these altars and temples and tributes to Eros and Psyche and Zeus and Hermes, Paul finds this humble little nondescript plaque on an altar with this inscription. It reads, Agnasto Theu, Agnasto Theu, to the unknown God, or to the God we do not know. And Paul thinks this is a point of connection with these smart but pagan Athenians. And so he says, this God you don't know, we think we know who that is. Let me tell you about this carpenter from Nazareth, and you can make up your own mind. And I love this story because it just seems to me that there's some intellectual hospitality on Paul's part there, right? Some space and grace, a conversation. Let's listen. Let's think about what God is really like. Agnostotheu, to the unknown God. It's where we get our word agnostic, right? The person who doesn't know one way or the other whether there's a God or not. So we all know people who are better than their religion, right? Do you know someone who would be better off without her faith? Maybe you better not answer that. An article in the Christian Century a while back had a provocative title. The title was Church-Based Hate. And this article talked about a woman, a mother, her name is Mary Lou Walner, and she was a person of deep, rich Christian faith, but this deep and rich Christian faith did not help her to negotiate the time when her daughter came out of the closet as a lesbian. Mary Lou just could not wrap her head around this sexual orientation. 
And at one point, Mary Lou's daughter sent her a letter telling her that she was her mother in a biological way only and how damaging and hurtful her shaming words were and that the daughter did not have to and did not want to forgive her and that she did not want her mother in her life any longer. And so Mary Lou decided to respect her daughter's wishes. She stayed out of her daughter's life. They lived miles and miles apart. And the next communication Mary Lou had about her daughter was that she was dead. She had taken her own life. And after this happened, somebody asked Mary Lou Walner, what would you do differently if you had to do it over again? And she said, I would grab my toothbrush and my credit cards and my car keys and jump into the car and drive to wherever she was living and tell her that I loved her very much no matter what. I did not do that, and now I never can. And so we ask, we people of faith, ask people of unfaith or of no faith to help us fashion a faith that will shape more beautiful lives because we have this stunning story, the maker of all the stars and worlds crossed vast spans of nothingness in the far reaches of intergalactic space to love us into loveliness and to grace us into gracefulness. Lavishly loved, we can lavishly love and lavishly live. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.